All right, Scott spoke to our two-service thing this morning. Uh, briefly, I want to add a thought. Um, I want to encourage you with this thought. The two-services um, plan for Crosspoint Fellowship was not something, it was not an effort to make corporate worship more convenient for you. Okay, I don't mean that in an ugly way at all. I don't, I don't want any of that to come across as ugly. I just want... I want you to understand the reason we went to two services was to, was to open up space for people that were visiting Cross Point that didn't have a place to park or didn't even have a place to sit or didn't have a place to leave their children. So we went to two services. We thought, okay, let's open this space up. And the, we're thinking what's, what's going to be the difficult hour to populate is going to be the first hour. So we want to sort of front load the first hour with a lot of our member families uh, by maybe putting youth in the, the youth study in the second hour, things like that to sort of set ourselves up to open up that space. And what we're finding a couple of months in is the second service of some of you, I've, I've noticed this morning, some of you that are here this morning in this hour are typically in our second service. And I'm going, oh my gosh, what the second service is going to be? Because really the second service is the only way I could describe the second service. It's like a weekly opportunity to die naked <laughs> and to know that I got to do it again next week. I mean, it's not that bad, but it is really hard. And what's hard about it is not doing it twice. What's hard about it is seeing people who are visiting for the first time that are sitting in a service that's a third the size of y'all. This populated by other visitors that are looking around going, wow, this is kind of lame. I mean, I'm being really honest, so I want to encourage you. I mean, it's worship. We take the supper, we preach, we sing. It is as much worship as this is. But I want to encourage you, if you're in the first hour for the sake of convenience, because you're like, man, I get to get my corporate worship out of the way, and then I, I can go do some fun stuff or get to, get to work on my chores or whatever. I'm not going to tell you that's like evil. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to appeal to you, urge you, to if, if you're not limited to the first hour, to consider coming to the second hour so we can be here to sort of populate a service for people that are visiting for the first time. That was the whole mindset. So um, I ask you to think on that and pray on that. And, I, man, I love Scott's reminder this morning. This two services thing is not forever. This is a temporary solution to a problem that's a good problem, but it's temporary. And this next week is going to be really fun for us to be together. I'm excited about that and hopeful for that. Uh, that that'll be a nice reminder for us of what this thing's all about. So maybe if you're in the first service and you're thinking kind of like, I kind of like the first service. There's some Bible studies in the second service I like more. I get that. Um, are some Bible studies I really want to go to? I totally get that. I feel like this, you know, if you feel like this 9 a.m. service is working for you, I just want to encourage you to maybe consider being more missional. Think about being missional in terms of your church weekly corporate worship. You have an opportunity to connect to folks that in many cases are not part of a church family and they may be visiting for, for, for the first time. What a great opportunity to connect to somebody and make them feel welcome and um, just maybe help their trans transition as they're looking for a church home. Okay, let me open in prayer. We're going to pray for another church this morning. And interestingly enough, one of our own is preaching at another church this morning, Morris Bean. So we're going to pray for Morris. We're going to pray for Aber. Aberfoyle, I struggle. I want to say Hydrofoyle. Aberfoyle Baptist Church. What a weird name for a community. But uh, we're going to pray for Aberfoyle Baptist Church. Uh, the pastor there is named Carrie Metter. I don't know Carrie, but we're going to pray for Carrie and his family as well. So let's pray. 
God, we are thankful for the opportunity to lift up another church this morning. We're thankful that one of our own is bringing a message and a word this morning. I'm going to pray for Morris. I pray that you have blessed his week of preparation, that he has been fueled by worship, uh, that he is um, ready to represent you and to expose your word and to just set it loose so that the Holy Spirit can do his work on God's people. Lord, I uh, just pray that you would use him this morning. I pray that Aberfoyle would be ready to hear from you. Uh, Lord, we too pray for the church itself, for Kerry and for his family, uh, for the other leadership of the church. Lord, we pray that they are fueled by worship. Lord, we pray that they are blessed and walking together as part of your people and in a leadership role among your people. Lord, that you're guiding them in wisdom, uh, that they are, um, are, are shepherding your people well there, that the, the people at Aberfoyle are being equipped. Lord, that they are are walking uh, brightly uh, and uh, aromatically and that they are salty as they are going about their, their lives in this community, Lord. We are thankful for the chance to lift them up and just pray that you would bless Aberfoyle Baptist Church this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together. Uh, give us um, an insight into who you are this morning and what you've done for us and your great work for us in Christ. We're turning this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Job chapter 19. So, um, Daniel's phone has been acting up. <laughs> I love telling a story on my kids when I didn't, have a, didn't even tell them, I give them a heads up that I'm going to tell a story on them. Daniel's got a good sense of humor about it. So, I just kind of share with y'all, Daniel's phone is acting up. And Daniel's 14 years old. I mean, does anybody else know what I'm talking about? This is an emergency. Like, Dad, my SIM card, it says it's not reading my SIM card, and my screen is not working, so all right, let's. And we need an Apple tool to take the SIM card out. I'm like, okay. Oh, in the absence of an Apple, Apple tool, let's get a paper clip and see if we can um, make this happen. So we've kind of done a patch job on it, but it's still not working right. It's still not uh, really functioning well. And for a 14-year-old, that is a really big deal. I assured Daniel that God's grace is sufficient. We were talking about it the other day. He announced to me that it was acting up, and I began to hum uh, it as well with my soul. Um, just trying to encourage him, you know, encourage my son in this hour of need, crisis. The, uh, and I'd share that, that, that story, kind of a light story, and then thankful that Daniel has a good sense of humor about it. That, man, we're facing struggles. We're facing trials. Whether you're a 14-year-old with a phone, which I get it, that, that, that's kind of a curveball, and that's frustrating. You can't Snapchat. You can't text. You can't do all those things that are so much a part of your daily activities. I totally get that. We have a few options when something like that happens. We can freak out, and Daniel didn't. I'm going to represent you, laddie. He didn't freak out. You can freak out. We can get angry. We can uh, uh, do all manner of responses. We can uh, vacate the problem, you know, whatever problem it might be. I was thinking about we might do some version of what our sympathetic nervous system does. It's called the fight-or-flight response. Some of you have studied that before. You know that we, without even being conscious of it, that our bodies shift into this mode where our, our pupils dilate. Our blood is shunted from the viscera to the extremities to get you ready to fight back or to run, one of the two. Um, uh, your heart starts racing. Your, 
your face gets flush. All these things happen as sort of a protective measure that you don't even have to think about. But in some ways, we do a version of that. It's more protracted, fighting or fleeing when we face some sort of difficulty or trial, whether we attack, whether we argue, whether we murder in an extreme case, or whether we just evacuate and run from a problem and vacate a relationship or vacate a friendship, vacate a workspace, vacate a church even. We have those sort of responses to difficulties. I was thinking about this morning that in some ways we have an opportunity to consider um, a model for how to respond to difficulty in tough circumstances. In Job, the early church considered Job a model, okay, not just a, a picture of Christ, an early picture, a prefigure of Christ, but also a man to model and to emulate. So I think we're going to do that this morning. We're going to consider Job as model in way to respond, in a way to respond to difficulty and tough circumstances. So we parachuted into Job chapter 19, sort of parachuted into this thing mid-story. By this point, Job has lost everything. He's sort of midway through getting beaten up by his three friends. And I put air quotes around those intentionally because they're not proven to be very good friends. We parachuted into chapter 19, and last week we captured the first 22 verses. And in some ways, we captured really how dark it is and was for Job. Just to kind of highlight that darkness, that God turned him upside down. Okay, was a term that we used. And the word that's actually used there is sort of this presents this picture that God made him a perversion, inverted him. God turned word because we're sitting here reading God's word where that very thing has happened. Oh, if only my words were written down. And here they are. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, as I read these next couple of verses, I want you to look for verbs. Job's verbs, to be specific. If this is a guy we're going to model and emulate, let's look for his verbs. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is judgment. All right, so we're going to look at just basically three verbs, three of Job's verbs this morning. If you want kind of a plan for the morning, a map, so you can kind of, it kind of helps me listen to know where someone's going and what they're up to, and kind of even how long they're going to be there, here's the map for the morning. We're going to consider first that Job knows. That's first verb. It's not going to be exhaustive, but it's going to be a a thorough treatment of what he knows specifically. And secondly, we're going to consider what he's looking forward to, that he shall see God. That's the second verb we're going to give some time to. And the third thing, very light, brief treatment, that we're going to consider that his heart faints. Those are the three verbs. He knows, he shall see, and his heart faints. First of all, he he knows something very important about God. That's what we're going to take a close look at. He shall see God as that second thing. It's a future tense verb that beyond the boils, after his skin has been completely destroyed, it seems, whether it's in, in a, uh, a, a completely destroyed flesh or a resurrected flesh, replaced f- flesh, he says, I shall see God. And that third thing in verse 27, he said, his heart faints, present tense. His heart literally hurts within him. So he knows, he shall see, and his heart faints. Three verbs worth 
modeling. First of all, he knows. Let's consider just for a moment what he knows. In verse 25, let's read it again just for the sake of context. It says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. I know that God is not dead. Now he's referring to God there, rightly in our Bibles, that R is capitalized. Redeemer here, he's speaking of God, and he said, I know God lives. In all that he doesn't know, Job knows this. Now you think about the nature of crisis and the nature of trial. What makes it so difficult oftentimes is that it's so confusing and there are so many unknowns. How do we know that our phone is going to get sorted out with a new SIM card? How do we know it's that simple? And that's a funny version of some things that we really struggle with. A lot of unknowns and real significant crises. Like in the case of conflict, for example, why is this happening is the question that we might be wondering. Conflict with friends or family or with a spouse or with workmates. Why is this happening? What have I done to cause this or perpetuate this? What are they saying about me? That's another unknown, isn't it, that we wonder about. What are they saying about me? What does this mean for the future? We're in conflict that's really hard. It's an unknown. What does it mean for the future? And what does this say about me? Man, that's a great question that a friend has asked me a number of times over the years to question and deal with. What is this saying about you? Or what do you believe this is saying about you? Those are all unknowns that we become just sort of awash in when we're in the middle of a conflict-related trial. Maybe when we're in a trial that involves some sort of sickness, we're wondering how is this going to turn out and how much is it going to hurt over the course of getting to that resolution. Maybe when we're in a trial that's involving a job where you've lost your job or your job is in jeopardy, maybe you're wondering these, with the, dealing with these unknowns, what next? How am I going to provide for my family? The unknowns are legion. And really, if you get on Google, you're going to Google the problem you're going to realize the unknowns that you came up with only scratch the surface of what the Google environment will come up with. If you're dealing with some sort of symptoms or sickness, get on Google and you're dead. (laughs) You're just dead. Man, Job's unknowns are also legion. He doesn't know why these things have happened to him. He doesn't have the view that we do into the divine counsel, does he? Chapters 1 and 2, like giraffes where we stick our head up through the styrofoam and we can hear what's going on in the divine council, whether engaging and talking or God and Satan are interacting about Job's future. He doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know why these things are happening to him. He doesn't know why he was even born. You remember his lament in chapter 3. Why was I even born only to experience such suffering? He doesn't know why his friends are no help to him. He doesn't know why they don't feel some sort of conviction, some sort of shame, some sort of embarrassment for so vigorously and wrongly attacking him. But here's what he's struggling with most. Here's the biggest unknown for Job. He doesn't know where God has gone. For a good father and a good God that's been so much a part of his life up to this point, he has many, many unknowns. But he does know this. He knows that God lives. He knows that God lives. Uh, one of my favorite movies over the years has been the movie The Edge. It's got Anthony Hopkins in it and um, Alec Baldwin 
and uh, it's a great movie. Uh, I don't want to ruin it for you, but he, uh, they, they have to, to do battle in the, in the elements with a bear, okay, this, this man-eating bear. Their plane crashes, and uh, I've ruined it for everybody if you haven't seen it at this point. But I'm not going to tell you how it turns out. Um, but their plane crashes, and Anthony Hopkins is the voice of reason. He's the kind of guy that you all have probably been in a crisis before. Maybe you're this person, or maybe you know this person, where you're in a crisis, and that person takes you to, when everybody's freaking out, that person takes you to, okay, well, what do we know? We know we have seven matches. We know we have two flares. We know our cardinal directions, and we know we have legs that work and can hike us out of here. In an environment when you're awash with unknowns, it's helpful for that to have that person that will take you to what do we know. And Job would be that guy. Because here he is covered in boils. He's lost everything, and here he runs to what he knows, and what he knows is that, okay, I don't know much right now, but I know this. God lives. God lives. That's better than matches. That's better than flares. And that's better than maybe a pocket knife. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the only other place I'm going to have you turn this morning. It's a very familiar story. And um, just because it's familiar doesn't mean it doesn't have, have something to provide. Something to give us this morning with this first point. Job knows that God lives. It's the story of David and Goliath, and I'll just sort of read some excerpts. You might be able to, to, to follow along with me. I'll mention the verse as I read it, but I'm reading in some ways sort of a shorter version of the whole chapter. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. In verse 2, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And drew up a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Whose height was six cubits and a span. I always have to convert all that every time I read this passage. It's about nine and a half feet tall. This guy's a moose. All right, he's a big old boy. Okay. He had a helmet of bronze on his big old meat head. He's armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. I didn't convert that, but that sounds like a lot, right? He had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? 600 shekels, God, that's really heavy, I bet. And a shield bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's just add in there, they're freaking out. <laughs> right? They're freaking out. This is a really bad situation. Okay, jump down to verse 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. 
And take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. That sounds good. And ten cheeses, that's going to be amazing. So if your brothers are well and bring some token, or see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Okay, so look down at verse 20. So David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. You can just hear that. This is a big deal. Make a great movie scene right here. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Hey, guys, what's going on? And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines. He's talking with his brothers, and he's interrupted by this big old moose that starts speaking the same words as before, and David heard him. Hold up, brothers. I want to check on you, see how you're doing, but let me see what this big moose has to say. And the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. They're freaking out, right? Agreed. Scary guy. So David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this? Verse 26. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies? Look, here it is. Of the living God. It's not his only reference, but it's an important reference. Who is this big moose? Man, that he should defy the armies. Of the living God. In verse 28, one of his brothers, his oldest brother, hears him, and he heard him spoke to the men and or speak to the men, and Eliab's brother, or Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And look down in verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Okay, little David says, I'll take this guy. And verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised moose shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of, here it is, of the living God. And here's where David is getting at. Here's what he's getting at when he's referencing the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. There's something to viewing God as a living God. And for David, it's like, hey, God lives, and I can reckon with this big fella. For Job, you get the sense that he's saying, I don't know much right now, but I know this, that God lives, and somehow I'm going to reckon with this dark hour. Man, it's a theme in our Bibles. It's not just David. That's one familiar passage. Jeremiah 10.10, Jeremiah is speaking to the imminent exiles into Babylon especially, but for the, ne- for the northern kingdom into Assyria. And he references the living God versus the carved and contrived gods of the Babylonians. In some ways, he's saying it's going to be the living God who is going to see us through this time and restore us back to our land. It's going to be the living God that sustains us in the exiles. It's going to be the living God that helps me defeat this giant. It's going to be the living God that carries me through this hour of darkness for Job, and it's going to be the living God that sustains us through the exiles. 
Another very familiar story of Daniel being thrown to the lions. It's interesting that the Babylonian king Darius, when he hustles back to the lions den the next day, he calls out to Daniel, Daniel, did the living God save you? Man, I love that Darius knows something that we sometimes forget, that our God actually lives. Where else would he hear that he's a living God except from Daniel? I can imagine that Daniel, as he's being thrown into the lion's den, he's saying, hey, King Darius, it's going to be fine, for the living God is going to deliver me. Sure enough, he did. It's not just an Old Testament character study, too, where we see people referring to the living God. Probably the most important, profound confession in our Bibles. When the apostles have walked, the disciples have walked with Jesus for a period of time, and he asked them, who do you say who I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ's response to him was, okay, you know what? Based on that confession... I'm going to build my church on you, and I'm going to populate it with other people that see me as the son of the living God. Man, it's a theme. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he referred to the church as the temple, like you, of the living God. When he wrote to Timothy, he said, Timothy, I want you to put elders in place, and I want you to put deacons in place. And I want you to put some order in the church because the the church is the household of the living God. It is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Man, there's something to seeing God as the living God. Job knows that his God is living. And you can add to that, that list. David knew that his God lives. Jeremiah knew that his God lives. Daniel, Darius even, Peter knows that God lives. Paul knows that God lives. The Corinthians know that Tim and Timothy know that God lives. And a living God, here's the important thing that I have to be reminded of week after week, is that God is not an idea. I find myself sometimes being overwhelmed with preparing to preach each week, thinking, man, how can I convey these ideas and these truths and forgetting the fact that we're talking about a living being who's actually here with us right now. That's why this is a supernatural event. I'm not giving a speech. We're not reading from leather and paper with some ink on it. We're actually engaging a living being. i got to be reminded of that. Are you kidding me? I can stand and deliver this morning realizing that I'm representing and speaking on behalf of, by ordination and appointment, a living being. Okay, I can do that. No, I'm not in for a speech this morning because I'm kind of tired. I'd rather sleep in. But when it comes to speaking for and representing a living being, that'll change the nature of your problems. That's what I'm saying is, insert problem X. Realize that you you don't have just an idea supporting you in that problem. (laughs) Right? How lame would that be? You don't just have some sort of truth supporting you, some notion. You actually have a living being who's for you. Man, that'll change your trial, won't it? That'll change you in your trial. That'll give you something to hold on to in your trial. That you actually have a living being who is aware and is involved and is for you. Amen? Man, I love that. Job knows something really important. Man, I hope we can know it too. Our God lives 
The second thing that we can know, let's go back to Job chapter 19. If you've turned away from it, just go back and find it again. I'll find it myself too. Job chapter 19. The second thing that we can draw from this passage, the second verb worth emulating, the first is that Job knows. We too can know that our God lives. The second thing comes from this next verse, verse 26. He says, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Okay, that's his next verb. It's a future tense verb. He shall see God. As sure as Job is that he's blameless, in regards to what he's going through, as sure as he's convinced that he's been suffering wrongly, he's also sure that he's going to see God. Okay, he has a present hope in a future verb. A present hope in a future encounter with the living God. And here's what's important. He's not just looking forward to some sort of viewing. Okay, that, that really wouldn't do much. Like, I just want to see what he kind of looks like. That's not what he's talking about here. For Job, there's more to it than just some sort of viewing. Seeing him for Job means that he's going to act. He's going to do something here. And we can get a sense of how he's going to act and what he's going to do by what he called him in the previous verse. He called him his redeemer. Capital R, his redeemer. This God that I'm looking forward to seeing, I trust and know. The one who lives is going to actually take some action for me on my behalf and in my behalf. He's going to redeem me. Man, there's more to it than just a viewing. He's going to act. I have a, a, a big dictionary in my office, in my study. It's a New Testament theological dictionary. I don't go to it often, but occasionally... I pull that big rascal out and I open these big, to these big topics and plow through some things. And I read pages and pages on redemption this week, but there was one paragraph that stuck out to me that just really I thought was beautiful. It's sort of capturing the work of redemption. Let me share that with you. Whenever men by their own fault or through some superior power have come under the control of someone else. Okay, that's Job. It would not through any fault of his own. It would be the latter case. Through some um, superior power have come under control of someone else and have lost their freedom to implement their will and decisions. Remember, he's blocked. His way is blocked. He's lost his freedom to implement his will and decisions. And when their own resources are inadequate to deal with that other power, right, they can regain their freedom only by the intervention of a third party. They can regain their freedom only by the intervention of a third party. And for Job, in this case, that third party is this God who lives. And in some ways, since we might attribute agency to him, we could say it's still a second party. It's not even a third party. This God is going to redeem and act and intervene. His hope is in this living God to redeem him because that's who God is. That's the nature of who God is, period. God has cover to cover demonstrated himself as a redeemer. He's given us many stories of Boaz and Ruth, for example. He's given us stories, that's heartbreaking stories and graphic stories about a guy named Hosea. Hey, prophet of Israel, I wanna, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute. 
You want me to what? Yeah, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And every time she leaves you and she runs back to prostitution, I want you to go buy her out of slavery. Because that's going to be a picture of the kind of God that I am with Israel as a redeemer, redeeming the unlikely and even the undeserving. God has demonstrated cover to cover this beautiful picture of redemption. And this is the God that Job is hoping in because that's what God does. He redeems. Job even calls him his name by name, Redeemer. What's so striking about it is that the same God that he attributes the ten to, the ten pains, the ten sufferings, the ten things that we just considered this morning, turning him upside down, those things, is the same God he says is going to redeem me. The same God who either allowed or ordained these 10 things over here is going to be the God who vindicates me and buys me out of slavery. Like God did this this stuff, but I know that God is going to do this stuff and pay my debts. God hurt me, but I know this very same God is going to help me. I've been turned upside down by this God, but I know that this very same God is going to right me. And here's what's so remarkable about Job's approach. It is so shockingly God-centric. Everything about it is God-centric. He has such a God-centered view on the whole thing of life and death and everything in between. God did this, either ordained it or allowed it, but God is going to do this. He's going to vindicate. He's going to redeem. He's going to deliver me. Man, I'm just imagining what life would be like for us if we had such a God-centered view on everything, where God was the center of everything. We're thinking about maybe conflict or trial between husband and wife. Christy and I have shared this before a number of times from the pulpit, that our marriage has not been easy. We've had some really tough spots. We've had to really work hard at our marriage. And the thing that we can know, Christy, she's one that, she's that person for us that says, what do we know? Here's what we know, is that God joined us together. When I say it at every wedding ceremony, it's not just part of the ceremony. What God joined together, let no man separate, means that God joined us together. We know that the very same God that joined us together is going to be the very same God that sees us through that's a God-centric view of marriage insert the other problems a God-centered view of relationships a God-centered view of your health God-centered view, I'm thinking about some of these things the very same God that gave you this metabolism over here where you feel like man I can't win. I'm just behind every, every single week and month and year. I just get heavier and heavier. I'm speaking out of my experience, too. I've dealt with weight problems my entire life. The very same God that gave me these metabolism issues is going to be the very same God that sees me through an answer. Learning to walk in self-control. That's a God-centric view of problem X. The God that allowed this sort of besetting weakness in me is going to be the very same God that redeems me in and through victory over that weakness. That is a God-centered view of your work, your pain, your losses, your struggles, all of those things. Viewing God as the prime mover behind all of those things is what it means literally to walk with God. Man, Job did it, and we need to do it. It's worth modeling. It's worth emulating. Seeing God at the center of it. God is a sinner for Job. He did these things, but I know he's going to do this thing. Job knows that God lives, present tense. And Job shall see God, and he knows he's going to act to redeem, future tense. 
Job doesn't fight. He doesn't flee. He doesn't freak out. He knows and he hopes to see God. The third thing that comes out of this passage is a great comfort for Ben McGraw. And I hope it's a comfort for you. It doesn't mean you're broken. This is why it's a comfort. Verse 27 that comes from this passage. The first one came from verse 25. He knows. The second one came from verse 26. He shall see. The third comes from verse 27. He says, my heart faints within me. While he knows and while he hopes to see God, he really legitimately hurts. Man, if you hurt, it doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It reminds me of this father that brings his child to the Lord. And the Lord says, I'll... Heal him if your faith is strong enough. And he says, man, I I believe, yet help my unbelief. Real honesty right there. I know. I look forward to seeing him because I know he's going to redeem me. But yet my heart hurts. Just being honest here, God. My heart hurts. I know you live. I hope to see you. I know you're going to redeem me. But yet I'm really hurting all of those things in the same breath. He doesn't deny the suffering like a good old-fashioned stoic. Put his best foot forward. Put on a happy face. He doesn't try and put a positive spin on it. He acknowledges and owns his own extreme You need to give your space, yourself some space to hurt. You need to give some space to those that you love and walk with, room to hurt. Because it's okay. The Psalms are full of psalms, psalmists that hurt. Asaph is one of our favorites in the McGraw house. We call him as soon as possible. That's not the way his name is spelled, but we call him that just for fun. Asaph said in Psalm 73, he said, My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's okay to hurt, but my encouragement would be to hurt Godward with the psalmist. Hurt Godward with Job. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to fight. You don't have to flee when you face difficulty. You can, I believe, like Job... Walk calmly and faithfully navigating your way through difficult seasons. You might be hearing this sermon this morning feeling like, well, I'm not that guy. I'm not that gal. I'm not that young person. I'm not the person that says, okay, this is what we know. We have seven matches and two flares and a pocket knife. You may not be that person, but the reality is you just sat in a supernatural event. You just spent however many minutes hearing a word from a supernatural living book. Where the Holy Spirit of the living God was present and working on you. So my argument would be that you were just equipped to walk like Job. You may think I'm not that person. Well, I think although that's a rare person who moves this way, we through the work of the Holy Spirit can be a rare people. We can be a rare people that then go walk in those dark, difficult moments in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our work settings, in our families, knowing, looking forward to seeing God, and even while we hurt. Thankfully, God's word is supernatural and equips us 
for life like nothing else. Let's pray. God, I'm entrusting this people to you. I'm trusting myself to you. We're asking a, a pretty tall order that we would move like this guy named Job. Lord, we're asking that you would work in us and through us to give us a, a strong and potent sense of the fact that you live, that you are for us, that you're not an idea, but you're actually a being who we are speaking to and thinking on right now. Lord, I pray too that you would work in us a people who are looking forward to seeing you and seeing our redemption in you. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are looking forward to you acting on our behalf in your time and for your glory, but acting on our behalf. Lord, too, I'm thankful that you've given us some space to hurt. And I pray that you would work in us that we would hurt Godward. That we would hurt in your direction, trusting you, hoping in you, looking to you. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. act in his behalf as he's looking back we don't know a couple thousand years maybe before Christ there's no sense clearly that he's looking forward to Christ he's speaking of Christ Um, he's speaking of God we trust that but it's a sort of an early version of that sort of hope and redemption that's something that we have realized fully now 2,000 years later the thing that he hoped for that he found in God we have found in spades also in God the Son Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to think about the definition that I read just a moment ago. I'm going to read it again just so we can think on this together as we take the supper, as we worship together a living being. Whenever men by their own fault or through some superior power have come under the control of someone else, in our case it's slavery to sin and self and death. We've lost our freedom to implement their own decisions and will. When their own resources are inadequate to deal with that other power, y'all acknowledge that, right? That we can't work our way out of this problem of being crossways with a holy living God. We have wronged the living God being connected to and enslaved to sin and death. Our resources are inadequate to deal with that other power. They can regain their freedom only by the intervention of a third party. That third party for us is Jesus Christ. Man, let's enjoy him together as we distribute the elements.